Welcome to the Casual Fridays REI podcast, where you'll learn about the wildly profitable niche of land investing. Active land investors Adam Southey and Justin Sleva are here to share their experiences with you so that you can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this highly lucrative niche. So without further ado, here are your hosts, Adam Southey and Justin Sleva. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm Adam Southey here with my co-host, Justin Sleva, and this is the Casual Fridays REI podcast. Today, we've got Jacob Vanderslice, former firefighter turned self-storage investor. Before we dive into that, though, let's talk about Price.com. Guys, Price is a powerful online web application that simplifies the acquisition process for real estate direct mail marketing campaigns. Price provides research tools and enables you to identify locations to mail, price your data, analyze over 1 million comps, pull owner records, and scrub your data to produce a ready-to-mail campaign list. Head on over to priced.com forward slash casual Fridays REI to start your seven-day free trial and get discounted prices today. That's P-R-Y-C-D.com forward slash casual Fridays REI. Coming from firefighter (laughs) to self-storage, the cool thing about this is he's not the first firefighter that we've seen turn professional real estate investor and I would assume successful real estate investor. The ten day work ten day work month schedule seems to be pretty uh, indicative of these guys that put their mind to it and go to go to become successful. So, Jacob, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having us on today, guys. We really appreciate it. Yeah, man, it's good to have you. Uh, I always like seeing, like Justin just said, like a firefighter who's taken so a job they were in and then they've grown to something else. I feel like that, that's just like part of being a firefighter is becoming an entrepreneur. I've never met a firefighter that didn't have a side gig somewhere, somehow. Yeah, I've long since retired. I've been out of the fire service for like 15 years now, but uh, it was a great job and you only work 10 days a month and it gives you lots of time to explore other opportunities on the side. And I, I certainly learned a lot, took a lot of lumps when I got into real estate back in the day. Um, but I've been uh, full-time in real estate since then and um, getting less stupid every year. <laughs> That's the key, right? That's so, right. So kind of walk us through, you know, that transition and, and what took you to present day and what you do presently. So our, our listeners have a little bit of a uh, background and kind of knowing you kind of know you a little bit better on what you do. Yeah, we got started doing mainly single family back in the day and took a lot of lumps. Um, the, the market really crashed and uh, you know, all the mistakes that we make in our real estate investing careers, I think are what we really learned from and I would do it again. I learned so much. And we scaled our, our single family business quite a bit over the following years. And we've done over 1,200 single family deals uh, since about 2006 and seven. Um, we partnered with Starwood Capital back when the institutional players got into the single family rental space. That was a, that was a great JV back in 13 and 14. Um, and then we evolved into commercial real estate around the same time. And we started buying busted warehouses around Denver Uh, 100-year-old plus brick bomb shelters and converting them into multi-tenant experience-based retail concepts. So a lot of breweries, restaurants, yoga studios, gyms, um, held on to some of those and sold others. And then we migrated into the self-storage space beginning in 2015. And we like the asset class because it's been historically uh, recession-resistant. And we thought we were overdue for a recession given how much the market had run up back back leading up to 2015. And we thought that any day there was going to be a softening and we were very wrong. It just kind of kept going. Then obviously COVID and the rest is history, but you wouldn't even know COVID's out there given what the market's still doing. Um, So yeah, we built our self-storage portfolio organically. We started building ground up back in 15, uh, a couple projects in downtown Denver with a a JV with some high net worth folks. Um, And we expanded our footprint in the following years into the Midwest. And now we have um, 30 self-storage facilities 
in Colorado, the Midwest, and the Southeast. Um, just over 1.5 million square feet, about 150 million in total cost, and around 13,000 units. Uh, so that's, that's our main line of business, and uh, it's been good to us. And, and thankfully, the asset class really performed well uh, in 2020. Very cool. Uh, I like hearing that. As you, I kept every, as you were talking, I was like, "Oh, I'm asking a question about that," and then you answered it in the next sentence, and then you say something else. I'm asking a question about that, but I've always, I've always really liked self storage and see like how fast. I mean, that seems pretty fast to me. When you really, you said you really started getting into it about 2015. Is that right? And now you've grown. Yeah. Over the last five, five and a half years to where you're at. That's that's impressive. Yeah. The question. So going back through that, kind of understanding this, you said you started to go to the Midwest. How many states are y'all in currently? We're about 10 states. Okay. Uh, we got a bunch of deals in the Florida Panhandle, Carolina, uh, Colorado, of course, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin. So we generally like the Midwest and the Southeast quite a bit. We, of course, like the Mountain West, but uh, it's tough to find yield right now in our own backyard. Denver's been rather oversupplied and pricing expectations and dividend yields are, are just uh, not what we can find in some of these more secondary markets. How are you finding these? Are these uh, something a broker brings you, or y'all shop off market, or a combination? Yeah, we've done we've done a little bit of both. We did a um, we applied some of our single family marketing practices to self storage acquisitions, and we placed about ten million off of a direct mail campaign. It was a pretty basic letter, just saying, "Hey, we're not brokers; we're buyers. We'd love to give you an offer on your facility." Um, and the rest of our acquisitions have been just through our broker network. I hate using the term off market because often an off market deal is maybe not a good deal, but we've gotten a few, what we believe are really good off market deals just through broker relationships before they get listed. Um, we did a $20 million acquisition in Michigan and that portfolio was not listed. We got it through a broker contact and gave them a price that made sense for the sellers and, and closed. So most of it's broker networking, but a little bit of direct to seller initiative as well. And I like that there's a mix there though. That's, that's pretty fun to us. We do direct mail as well. So, and we've done it with commercial and residential and land. So it's it's neat to see that that actually works in that asset class as well. Just being such a, a like you said, a basic letter, but actually gets to the point and says, hey, we're ready to go. So what is the secret sauce to finding a good deal in, in self-storage? Um, well, one of the pitfalls of self-storage right now is a lot of markets were generally oversupplied. And that's kind of stabilizing. But a lot of folks had the same idea to build at the same time. So that's one of the pitfalls you got to watch for is oversupply. Um, Self-storage is very local supply sensitive. So we track supply ratios in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Nationally, there's about seven square feet of self-storage per capita across the US. Um, once you're getting over eight and nine square feet per capita and, and the one, three and five mile trade radius, you start to see a decline in rates and occupancy. Um, so we, we like to find those target markets with good demographics, good, good nuts and bolts and favorable supply ratios. Um, and the biggest risk is somebody builds a new facility near you. And we try to mitigate that as much as possible by buying at or below replacement cost. And then obviously pulling um, building permit records, analyzing zoning to see what the risk of a new competitor might look like coming near us. But it's not something you can totally defend against. What about managing them? I mean, if you're in Colorado and you got property in Florida, are you do you have a manager on board? Are they kiosk type places or so we don't we don't do kiosks um kiosks really don't lease units they're just more of kind of a kind of showboating to a degree they break you can't see them in the sun there's a maintenance issue um, on the management side we used to outsource all of our management to some of the national REITs 
And over time, we found that they just don't care about our deals as much as we do. Our interests were misaligned. There's a lot of ancillary revenue streams and self-storage that they keep and they don't share with their third-party owners. So we formed our own management platform about three years ago, and we internally managed almost our, entirely, our, our entire portfolio. We have a few legacy deals that are still third-party managed, um, but we self-manage everything. In terms of staffing, um, some of our facilities do not have a full-time staff member. Uh, some of the smaller deals that are drive-up, non-climate-controlled unit mixes, um, they do have an on-site that's um, nearby that lives in a facility that we control maybe a mile away. Um, and then some of our larger facilities, we have either a part-time or a full-time staff member. And then our bigger multi-story climate-controlled facilities, those are staffed full-time uh, with one and a half employees. So kind of everywhere between. We have some remote-managed deals um, that don't have a full-time person. We have others with a traditional leasing office and a, a full-time captive employee taking calls and handling customers. Just out of curiosity, what do you consider a small deal? Unit-wise, uh, yeah, small deal. We typically think about small uh, deal size in terms of net rentable square feet. So a smaller deal would be like twenty-five thousand square feet. Um, our average uh, deal size is forty-five thousand square feet within our portfolio. We have some that are one hundred ten thousand feet. We have others that are twenty-five or thirty. We generally are not targeting single asset acquisitions that are under thirty thousand square feet, just because, as you guys know, it takes as much time, if not more time, to do a small deal than it does a big deal. Um, We'll acquire facilities that are a little bit smaller if they're part of a portfolio acquisition and it's the same seller. We'll also acquire facilities that are a bit smaller if they're already in one of our existing target markets and we can enjoy some of the operational efficiencies of bringing a new facility nearby, even though it might be a small acquisition, all the deals in the portfolio and that submarket might benefit just by spreading those costs across another asset. Wow. Do you know when you listen to somebody talk and they know their shit to the detail, like, hey, this is how many square feet, this is what we look like. Like, I feel like you have a Excel spreadsheet there that you put in a deal and you type it in and it says, this is many square feet, you know the area, then you've got another button you push. So is there like some platform secret thing? Because you know that stuff so well and it came out so easily. Like, I'm, I'm impressed by that. And typically I'm not impressed by somebody just spouts off their shit. But that, that, was, that was beautifully said and beautifully done. Like, I want to do business with you now because I'm like, this guy knows exactly what they're looking for, and it's non-emotional. There was no, like, oh, you know, we hope to get this, and if then, and then I'm going to get this. Like, it was like, no, this is what we look for. We target this, we expect this, and this is what we look for to defend against our downside. I mean, that's a, Jacob, that's great. I, I love seeing that. Oh, I appreciate it. Uh, don't ask me anything further because I won't know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's it's great. And so as y'all built this up, what what made the twist from commercial and you you said something earlier when you talked about the experience based commercial. I think I can't remember the exact term you used, but I was blown away by that term. It was a great term, by the way. Uh, but what made the switch? Like you went from single family houses to commercial to, to self storage. What was that defining moment to say, hey, you know what? Let's go to this switch to this and go to self storage. Well, every real estate entrepreneur, not every, but most, we all talk about scale. We always mm -hmm. want to scale our business. We want to do 100 deals this year and 200 deals next year. Yeah. Um, we found that the adaptive reuse retail model was very difficult to scale. Uh, a lot of our deals have a historic preservation component, so we're, we're kind of preserving the character of these old buildings. Yeah. And if you do three or four in a given year, you can't really go out and find eight or ten the next year. Um, and a lot of shops out there, both institutional and private equity, have done a good job scaling single family. Um, we've done it all over the country, mainly in Denver, but we've covered, I don't know, 20 different states. And deal flow was so challenging and yields were getting so compressed and values were getting so pushed up and inflated. And it keeps going up month by month. We just found that single family and adaptive reuse retail were tough to scale. 
and we found that storage was, it's still very difficult. I mean, it's not easy creating wealth in real estate, whatever the asset class is, but the scalability, the predictability, and the ability to repeat the same model over and over again is what really attracted us to it. And we also like the, the granularity of the revenue stream. So you're relying on thousands of people to pay you 50 to $200 a month. Yeah. And you can respond real time to supply and demand changes, not only in a facility, but in a submarket. So for example, if you have a unit type that's not leasing well, you can drop rates on that, drive up occupancy, then drive up rates over time. And likewise, if you have a unit type that's really full, you can do rate increases because all the leases are month to month and drive up your revenue stream there. So we, we like the, the fact that we can really respond real time to supply and demand changes. And we're, we're leasing out metal boxes on yeah. month to month leases. <laughs> I love it. You're saying that uh, thousands of people paying you $50 to $200 a month, is that y'all's main goal as the cash flow? Or are y'all looking for value add? Are you looking for a combination? Like what really drives a decision for y'all? Yeah, it's, it's a combination. I would say primarily we're focused on income. And we, we also underwrite upside, but you can't quantify upside if you're holding a deal for, say, six or seven years. You can't predict what the cap rate's going to be, what values you're going to do, but you can predict the cash flow. And it took us a long time to figure this out, and we're still figuring it out every day. But net worth is not real unless you have income. <laughs> and we believe that income produces net worth, and net worth doesn't necessarily produce income. So we like, we like facilities that we can buy an aggregate that will produce at a minimum an 8% dividend yield uh, to our fund. And then with some appreciation amount over time and tax benefits, um, and we're underwriting a net return to investors of a 16 to 18% IRR over the life of the fund. So roughly half of that is fairly predictable cash flow. And the balance of that is an unpredictable reversion event. I mean, we think we're being conservative on our value prediction and assumptions years down the road, but the reality is we just don't know, but we can predict income. What's the, what is, I mean, you mentioned fun. Like, can you talk about yeah, more? Than I heard, that? I heard and, fund and 16 to 18%. Yeah. And lifetime of fun. Like I'm curious what, what the lifetime. Yeah. Of fun yeah. Is. We, we historically have done single asset syndications and we pivoted to a fund structure back in the middle of 19. Uh, we launched that fund. We closed it out in August of 20, and we launched a new fund in January. And the goal of this fund, we're raising $30 million in equity. We're about a third of the way through that. And once we're fully deployed with bank leverage, that'll equate to about $100 million in deals. And we're focused on existing self-storage facilities where we can add value with uh, nominal capital improvements, You know, new gate system, camera system, maybe a seal coat on the asphalt, new doors. Uh, but mainly add value through operational efficiencies. And that's really controlling expenses, um, aggressive online marketing and advertising, and uh, really dynamically and efficiently managing our revenue streams. Um, as you guys know, commercial real estate trades on a multiple of the income it produces or the cap rate. And if you can create a few dollars of NOI, that exponential value increase is meaningful. So we're, we're all about trying to grow that NOI uh, over the duration of our ownership period and then eventually sell for a profit. Nice. I love everything about it. I, like I, I listen to you and I, I want to say I feel dumb sometimes with some of the stuff you're saying, but I'm like, I know every term you're saying, I'm like, he says it so well that it is like, okay, how do I give this guy some money? So if I wanted to be in your fund, what does it take to, uh, to, to be partners with y'all? Um, we only take on accredited investors. We're a 506C. Okay. And most folks probably know what that is, but all it means is if you're married, you got to make 300 grand a year, or you have to be worth a million dollars outside your primary residence. 
Um, our minimum investment is $100,000. Our goal is to distribute preferred return, which is 8% quarterly with increases in subsequent years. Um, if you wanted to invest, you can go to our website, which is vanwestpartners.com, or you can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. Nice. Cool. Yep. I would definitely recommend everyone check it out. I'm, I'll be checking it out. I think Justin's kind of yeah, interested in I, it. Yeah, I like it. I, I think the, the, the flex there that was like, we're raising $30 million to get $100 million in assets. I mean, that to me with the bank leverage is, sounds great. Are you buying below market value or getting it at market when you say you're going to deploy $100 million? You know, market value is an elusive kind of subjective metric. And 100% I would agree say, with that. I would say that sometimes, and that's a great question, sometimes we're buying these things at a very low yield on cost. Like we might be buying them at a four cap mm -hmm. because they're inefficiently managed. Occupancy is 55%. They don't have a website. Um, the the on-site person is uh, not good to customers. Nobody wants to lease there. And other times we're buying these at maybe a 7% yield on cost at 90% occupancy, but there's growth there because the rents are below market. Yep. So it kind of depends. Um, we determine market value really from a forward basis. So we look at what our yield on cost is going to be inside of about two or three years. Okay. And we try to solve to at least an 8% yield on cost on the deal, on the total capitalization. And if we can get there within a couple of years, that's a really good dividend yield on the equity in the deal. Wow. Okay. I, I love it. I'm like, I'm trying, I'm trying to understand how you went, <laughs> like I'm hearing you speak and going from firefighter 15 years ago, retiring, how you got this versed in this. And I, I know it's what you do full time. You've been doing it since 15. So I love to see the, the growth in that education. Cause I, you, you've made mention of lumps that you've taken over the last few years. And to me, that's just that, that story of those lumps and got you to hear is it's inspirational to a lot of people because it's like, hey, you got to take that step forward. You got to keep trying. You're going to try this new asset class. We're going to try this. We realize we can't scale. How do we scale out of that and keep moving forward? And that to me is the the failing forward mentality, but also being successful at the same time. I don't want to call it failing forward because you've been successful in each one of those scales and then you had to redo the business into that point. Yeah. I mean, we, we forget about the home runs that we've hit and we think about and remember every day the failures that we've had. And oh, yeah. the, the failures are how you learn. It's hard to it's hard to be a real estate entrepreneur by just learning from somebody else or reading it in a book or going to a seminar. You really have to go out and do deals. And that's how we've learned. Um, just uh, execution mistakes, acquisition mistakes, uh, bank leverage mistakes. And over time, you don't so much learn what to do, but you learn what not to do. Yep. I, I love it. Yeah, we're the same way. I mean, I, I've got a reminder. You can't see it, I don't think, but I've got a reminder on my desk over here of a major mistake that <laughs> keeps us from ever going back and doing it again. Yeah. He's referring to as a little a little bitty light. That recession that you talked about, 2007, 2008, hit, hit, hit home. Hit home yep. It hit home pretty good. So, but here we are. Yeah, you know, yeah. Those, those of us who were doing real estate before then learned so much. And there, there are so many people who are very intelligent, but they got into real estate in 10, 11, 12, yeah. and they feel like they can't lose. And, yeah. you know, COVID has probably, uh, to a degree, purified the market in certain asset classes. But, uh, yeah, it's... We're always we're always on the lookout for a downturn and what our portfolio is going to look like in the event there's another softening. And obviously, we've gone through it. We're on the tail end of the pandemic. Um, thankfully, storage wasn't affected and single family did better than ever. Um, but we're always thinking about what that next catalyst is. Mm -hmm. And we believe our moat of defense is really cash flow and predictable yep. recurring revenue streams. So that's what we're trying to do. 
everyone kind of thought, well, at least when it first happened, COVID was going to destroy the real estate market. But like you said, self-storage wasn't too perfected. Single family's never been more hot, in, in my experience, and land has never been hotter. I mean, yeah. maybe this stuff is to come in the following months or year or whatever. We'll see the turn of it. But right now, I mean, you'd have you to be making mistakes left and right not to be making money. I kind of feel, though, we're we're biased because he's in Denver, so you're in one of the hottest markets in the country. It's been that way for, for a while now. Uh, we're in Dallas, Fort Worth, and we've been in one of the hottest markets that we've seen in a while. We, we don't see that softening quite, but you know, you could say like California, Oregon, where some of these people are running away uh, from those areas. You know, it's it's a softening there. So, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm not there, obviously. So, but okay. still, it seems hot everywhere. Yeah, it's uh, it seems very irrational. I don't know what to think. <laughs> I mean, the, the bidding wars in our single family market just seems so bubbly. I mean, you've got deals. Mm-hmm. You got buyers trying to buy something for six hundred thousand dollars. They've written forty offers. They've gone in a hundred thousand over lists. They've missed out on deals over and over again. And I think mainly it's just a it's a lack of inventory, and people are not moving because they can make money on their home, but then if they want to stay in the same neighborhood, they're making a lateral move or they're paying yep. a premium. So the market's mm-hmm. kind of constricted, and people are staying put. But debt's cheap. People still want to get in the homeownership game, and uh, there there we sit in the single family market. Time will tell. Oh well. Uh... I think you said earlier, but people want to find you. It's your website is. Yeah. Website, email, Jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Vanderslice. All those awesome. work. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. We're, I think we both really liked what Chad said. Yeah. Like I, I feel like I need to go and get an Excel spreadsheet for my land deals and put it down with no emotion like Jacob put out there because it was great. I, I, like I, I say that it sounds sarcastic. I really mean that as a compliment because it, it was uh, a lot of guys will get on and tell you this high level bullshit that they do. They don't say, hey, this is what we look for exactly, like one, two, three, and four. And you did. I know we didn't get the whole secret sauce. I know you're leaving a little bit on the table there because you don't want anybody else to come in. But uh, I think that the way you explained that made sense to me. It, re- it resonated extremely well, and it showed your professionalism. And I, I really do appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you, guys. There, there's no secret sauce. We figure out what the deal is worth when we make it better. We figure out what's going to cost to make it better. Then we back into what we can pay for it. That's it. 100%. I love it. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks again, Jacob. And everyone, go check him out. And as always, do us a favor. Go to Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Give us a like, follow, subscribe. And then go to iTunes. Go to Stitcher. Go to wherever else you're listening to us. Like, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We appreciate it. We love you. See you next Friday. See you, guys. It was great. Thanks, fellas. We appreciate yeah. it.